Hello, I'm Shamin Parmesoran, an independent visual arts curator in Malaysia. Um, welcome and thank you for jumping into this podcast where we have the opportunity to be in conversation with um, Wanda Nanibush from Canada, who is an Indigenous author, curator and community organizer. She is also currently the curator of Indigenous art at the Art Gallery of Ontario, Canada. In her multiple roles, Wanda's work in the art tends to be grounded in the recognition of Indigenous art and culture and the questioning of historical and current political place for sovereignty over the Indigenous people. More importantly, the emphasis on bringing forth answers to these questions and how it impacts and shapes ideas of who we are today and moving forward. Welcome, Wanda. Um, and I think it's what nighttime where you're at. Yes, it is nighttime. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, thank, thanks for joining us um, from Canada. Um, let's begin by getting to know you um, and how you discovered or entered the art world. Um, did you start off by becoming? Uh, did you start off by being more a community uh, organizer and activist before becoming a curator, or was that vice versa? I fell into curating, <laughs> I would say, because right. I fell in love with people's work. And then I wanted to show, you know, their work to other people and sort of it kind of went from there. So it started from a place of falling in love with um, artists and artworks. When I was younger, I was very much, very much an activist, political um, kind of speaker kind of person but was also disillusioned with political movements and speeches, especially um, from leaders. I felt like that kind of language wasn't really capturing the future that I wanted to exist. And when I went to my first uh, contemporary Indigenous art shows, one of them was by Robert Houle in 1992 called Land Spirit Power. And it was at the National Museum of Canada, and I was 16 at the time. And I was floored at the way in which artwork um, seems to be able to speak to the nuances and complications of our desires for a different future in a way that uh, politics can't. And so my love started then, and it's continued ever since. And so I've always had multiple careers. Um, curating is one of them. Yeah, I think in the art world, this multi-hyphenated uh, sort of roles, um, uh, yeah, I mean, helps us actually get through um, or expand what we what what we actually look at in the art world. Um, yeah. All right, uh, basically, and as the curator of the Indigenous Art at the Art Gallery of Ontario, could you sort of give us a, a brief understanding of the Indigenous context of Canada? Uh, yeah, uh, for people here in Malaysia? For sure. Um, yeah. So in Canada, we use um, the words First Nation, Inuit and Métis. Those are kind of the groups um, that make up the Indigenous peoples of Canada. Um, there are 630 First Nations in Canada. There are about like 70 language groups that are languages, Indigenous languages that are still spoken today. So it gives you a sense of the diversity so there are many, many nations. So for example, I'm Anishinaabe Kwe. Um, in kind of colonial language, they call that Ojibwe or Chippewa. It's just one nation among many. 
that exist here. And we all have different kind of philosophies, different cultures, different governance systems, um, different languages. And um, the Anishinaabe are quite huge. So we kind of cover multiple provinces within Canada and then also within the United States. So when we're one of the nations with the largest kind of landmass um, that our nations spread everywhere. <laughs> so okay. that's kind of lovely. You meet cousins everywhere you go. Um, so yeah, that's the context. As far as the legal context goes, uh, we had treaties. Many of us had treaties, which were nation to nation agreements with the, with the British crown and then with the Canadian government afterwards. Um, and some of the th things that we think about with that are that we were supposed to grow, you know, independently of colonial settler nations. Um, those treaties were broken and, um, we were put under a law called the Indian Act, which basically makes us like wards of the state. So basically like children of the state. And that act has kind of controlled most of every aspect of our lives um, since 1876. And now we have like a massive sovereignty movement that has been going on pretty much since colonialism started where um, we kind of want those treaties honored and that idea of our own nationhood to um, continue and this way of raising our children in our own cultures to continue. Wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, it was quite interesting because when I was um, asked to sort of do this podcast, I really had to jump onto the internet and start researching. Um, yeah, because I think of how far our countries are, we, 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 we're not, you know, we don't really know um, a lot about what's happening in Canada. So I think that that's a good starting point. Um, and I think going going back to the arts, I think what, what I found um, interesting is the representation the representation of Indigenous art in Canada, um, I think, has moved beyond just um, exhibited in historical context, but has also been dynamically integrated into the contemporary arts of which you've been uh, a part of, right? Um, could you elaborate on basically the significance or importance of this? For sure. I yeah. think that one of the main ways that we have moved out of the anthropological, the historical, the ethnological kind of museums, which really saw our culture as only great and authentic pre-contact, pre like before colonization. So it's as if, you know, somehow we were supposed to die out basically, right? So yeah. our culture is only good in the past. Um, it's artists that really push that as um, from the 1950s forward, uh, they joined collectives, they um, joined um, into organizations and they really pushed the government, they pushed museums, they pushed each other to really expand um, out of those kinds of historical museums and into the fine arts world. Um, and they wanted to say like, we are no longer museum objects, right? Ourselves. We are cultures that grow, change, transform. We want to speak to the, you know, the times and the events of our time. And um, a lot of them went to art school and a lot of them were trained both in their kind of traditional mentorship kind of things within the community, 
whether it's carving or beading or sewing or whatever it is, um, but then also being schooled in a Western art historical context. And so a whole generation of artists came out that were combining these two worlds and felt no, no real conflict within themselves for that. You know, they didn't feel less indigenous at all. Um, and in a way it started a resurgence of our culture brought more mm -hmm. broadly. Um, when, when was that turning point for that resurgence? I would say, um, I mean, it's been pushed for always, but I would yeah. say the 1950s, 1960s is when it began. And that's largely because that's when uh, the residential school, um, residential school started becoming criticized publicly and started closing. And there was a generation of artists who came out of residential schools at that time. And just for people who don't know, Residential schools were um, started in the 1870s and they basically came into communities and took all the children out and they put them in boarding schools. And these boarding schools were, you know, basically training them to work in people's homes cleaning if you're a woman or work on farms or be a general laborer if you're a guy. And they were, you know, beaten for speaking their language. There was a considerable amount of abuse in these schools. And basically they were saying, you know, let's take the culture out of these people and make them Canadian. And um, it failed miserably, thank God. <laughs> um, but it was a really uh, traumatic experience for our communities for over 150 years. And um, when artists came out of those schools, they used the creative practice to get back in touch with their language, with their culture. Um, and they produced, um, say for the first generation, there was a series of painters who came out and they started painting our culture um, and, you know, touring it around and showing the youth. And I think that that really galvanized a deep and profound desire to um, bring back traditions that had been um, violently opposed and also bring maybe more out to light um, traditions that had gone underground in order to be protected. So some of that shame that had been built um, within the residential school system was starting to be shed. Hmm. Because I, I think I read somewhere that in 2017, I think that the government started recognizing and funding uh, uh, or putting a bit more money behind um, basically um, indigenous visual art uh, initiatives and projects? Yeah, there was a bit of an influx because of the, yep. um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that happened where they looked at the um, residential school system. Um, and largely that was fought for by survivors of the system um, who took, okay. <laughs> took the government to court basically. And um, this was the response. So yeah, they realized as most indigenous folks will tell you, um, that arts and culture is one of the places where healing happens the best. And so it's something our people need and want. Okay. Um, in just, just a bit of a side uh, question as well. Um, in terms of the art market, um, does it, uh, is there, is there a, a sort of a market for Indigenous uh, work, uh, whether it's uh, contemporary actually? Yeah. 
for sure, there's a market. I mean, it's growing exponentially right now. I mean, Indigenous artists are showing in um, major uh, art biennials like mm. Documenta and Venice and um there's also a considerable of buying of artwork that's happening at major museums as far as the commercial side of it goes not a lot of indigenous artists have galleries and i think that's something that's starting to grow as galleries start to get to know people's names get to know who's doing what and start to take a bit more risks in terms of bringing artists to an international audience and to you know their crew of buyers and I think that that's something that's happening a lot more. Indigenous artists, I think, are some of the best contemporary artists in the world. So um, it's just that the the actual, you know, often the prices of work are much lower and things like that. And so people get nervous yeah. as to their investment, right? If you're talking about the commercial side of things. Mm, mm, yeah. Yeah. So that seems to be shifting. There's a definite interest in Indigenous art globally. Okay. Okay. I mean, from the works you shared, I, I, I really like, um, I, I think that it's very heavy. A lot of the works are very heavy, but uh, also very strong visually, you know, it, it sort of brings out um, a lot of the issues that you've mentioned as well. Um, I would like to refer to an essay, you know, that you wrote, uh, Between Art and Culture, uh, Performing First Nations Sovereignty, which was featured in the book, Making Another World Possible. The, the essay talked about um, how you worked with artists uh, through, uh, how artists through performance art uh, spotlighted and spoke out against the unfairness of, uh, of, of basically governance and policies. Um, would you be able to elaborate on some of the performances that, that took place? Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, in that essay, I was drawing parallels between what um, happens in kind of like more protest environments and politics, um, the way in which politics is turning to art to make its um, voice more heard, and then the way in which art turns to politics. And so it's kind of like everything is blurring together these days, and especially in the realm of performance. Um, I was thinking about Bo Dick, who... Um, did a performance uh, where he brought back a very ancient governance um, thing that they do in his culture, the Haida, where they they have these copper shields and they break them. And it's, it's a way of um, shaming and saying that, uh, you know, you've broken the agreement, you've broken our trust, we can no longer trust you, this kind of this kind of thing. And it hadn't been practiced in a long time. And I think in the context of the culture, um, that's fine, but he wanted to bring it back in the context of how indigenous folks feel about the Canadian government and their policies and policies like the residential school system, but also the way in which colonialism is still continuing in a lot of um, laws and the treatment of the earth and um, different mining practices. And so he took these coppers all the way to Parliament and um, had this kind of caravan where he had all these people with him and he gathered more people along the way and stopped in different communities across Canada. It's a, quite a massive, massive country, right? So this can take days. And um, 
did some gift giving along the way and then did this performance of the breaking of the coppers at Parliament Hill. And it is hard to break copper. I don't know if you've ever tried to break copper with your bare hands and a stone, but it's really difficult. And one thing I noticed is that the men, as they were breaking the copper and the difficulty of doing that and the way they have to kind of yell and bring energy into it, it felt a little bit like grieving, you know, kind of grieving this um, experience of, of, of colonialism uh, within the country of Canada. And so they break the copper and then they left the piece, the broken piece on the steps of parliament for the prime minister. Uh, he did come out and um, did kind of experience this, um, but then, you know, proceeded not to keep, keep the broken copper. So I'm not sure what that meant. Um, but who, who didn't keep the copper? Have your own, your own idea of what that means. Yeah, yeah example of the way in which these kinds of traditions are being kind of recasted within an art context and a performance context to make sense of our own moment. Okay. Um, and I mean, I'm, I'm curious as in when he did this whole performance, like moving to the, through the country and, you know, going, going to parliament, um, there wasn't any, um, you know, uh, for example, the police and all that to sort of stop it or, or say, you know, you're not able to do this. Well, at the time, there was like a massive indigenous movement going across the country called Idle No More. And um, I was one of the organizers of that movement within the Toronto context and Ontario context for three years. And so um, I think the police were quite used to <laughs> protest and performance and from land defenders and water protectors and dancers and drummers and all kinds of things. Um, for quite a long time when he did this. And so I think uh, that's part of it. But also they may have learned that um, coming down really harshly when it's an artistic performance um, actually makes people turn against them, the government. So I think yeah. that's partly why we <laughs> use art too in those contexts is because it, does, it doesn't make them as violent against us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's it's interesting because I guess we we work in or we work in very different countries and contexts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think that's the reason I'm I'm asking. Um, in the sense of how how does art help? You know, uh, yeah. speak out or, or or you know push against um what we don't agree with uh, when it comes to. I'm not even sure that I'm supposed to say this to the government, right? Um, yeah. okay. Well, um, and what art is. yeah. It, it is has a subtlety to it and yeah um it is a it is a slower pace of change but it's more it runs deeper in a soul you know when you yeah slowly through something artistic rather than kind of um you know just saying you've changed you know what i mean it kind of has to live in your body and and how how does the, the the government sort of respond to it or do they do they you know do they let it go do they ignore it does it actually or do they react to it uh it really depends on yeah. the moment and the what's happening i think that sometimes the government responds um in a kind of violent way we've had uh protests right now with um water and land defenders from the Mi'kmaq who are on the east coast of Canada, so on the Atlantic Ocean, 
who are fighting for their fishing rights. Um, and the government uh, is basically staying out of it. And the the um, police have been quite violent and the local non-native, non-indigenous community has been quite violent. And so you get that. Um, we have another situation in Six Nations with 1492 land back where they're also trying to um, make a land claim of a, of a space that is being developed for housing. Um, and uh, again, the, gov- the police have gone in uh, quite violently. Um, on the West Coast, <laughs> on the Pacific Ocean, there's um, been some major arrests and some major violence uh, from the police against uh, land defenders um, of the Wet'suwet'en who are protecting their traditional territories from a um, kind of a pipeline coming through. So yeah, there's tons of, it's very, very varied across the country and okay. what's going to happen. Okay. Okay. Um, and I think moving forward to, to this year, basically, um, 2020, um, yeah. How, how has it been for, for, you know what what you've been doing in terms of uh, with the with uh, the gallery um, and the sort of lockdown that we've we've come to. Uh, what are some of the projects that you're currently working on? Yeah, I mean, COVID has been <laughs> quite intense. And yeah. um, so, what's the situation like in in Canada now? Are you under uh, lockdown, or are you? you know, being let out, uh, what's the situation? It's kind of a mixed situation. We, we were on lockdown, then we opened up and then our numbers spiked really high. So now we're back to kind of being more careful. So our museum has been open since July, but it's open with appointments and very low numbers and it's all deeply controlled with masks and, you know, things like that. Yeah. But they yeah, are. That's the- how we are here as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But they are letting people in and, um, you know, you can go to a bar and sit outside. You can go for a walk, those kinds of things. Um, people are, you have to wear a mask in public. Um, so things are kind of opening up, but most people are headed back inside now because of the numbers. It's like a second swing upwards, um, largely among young people now. So it's switched where it's going. Um, but generally I think, uh, you know, I, I'm working on exhibitions. We're still doing rotations in the permanent galleries. We're still, you know, doing all those things that we normally do. I just opened, um, a small exhibition of Michael Belmore's work, who is Anishinaabe like I am, and he works in sculpture, um, oddly enough, also in copper. (laughs) He works with stone and copper and clay, um, and he makes these beautiful uh, minimalist kind of sculptures that look at time from like geological time or, you know, he looks at um, larger kind of questions about how we treat animals, how we treat the earth and what our, what our role is in that. And how, how, has, um, how has COVID basically impacted um, the artists or, or, or the, the I would say the artists in, in Canada, yeah. Are they, you know, do they see it as a, a, a time to pause and reflect? Is it negative? Uh, you know, is it uh, an advantage to, to have the time to produce or think about more works? 
I think it depends on where you're at in your career, because I think if you, you know, there's some people who would love to pause and, you know, I've been working for a while and maybe have savings and things and maybe some gigs lined up. But I think for a lot of artists, um, it's been really difficult because they lost all their gigs Mm. You know, they lost their income. And um, I think the stress of that, you know, doesn't, isn't productive for creativity. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's true. So think, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's quite harsh. I mean, a lot of, a lot of my friends are doing gr- fine, you know, and then others are, are struggling really hard. So I think it, it depends on who you are and where you're at. Yeah. But and, I, overall, it's been extremely difficult for most people. Okay. And has there, has there been, um, I don't know, support or what, what's being done in the sense of uh, sort of getting through this time, I would say. Yeah, we have like um, monthly income that you can apply for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they it's like COVID support. Um, and um, most people qualify for that if you don't have a job. So um, definitely if you live in a city like Toronto, like I live in, it does not cover what you need. But if you live in a smaller town, it's probably covers what you need. So yeah, yeah, there is income. It's it actually created a movement for uh, general general income, basic income, because there they people say that well, it proves that we can do it, right? If we're able to do it for majority of the population right now, then yeah, why yeah. can't we continue? Okay, so in in terms of the the impact of this year on on sort of. Um, moving forward will it will it sort of uh, inform or impact how you sort of look at works or curate for the future i think well personally i've been asking myself the question of what do i do that's relevant <laughs> for yeah. the world <laughs> Actually, yes and for the future you know you can't i feel like there any sense of privilege is it kind of stinks these days, you know? So I think um, it's important to ask where the world is going, um, <laughs> what kind of world we want to live in, how do we want to care for each other and for the earth? And I don't know, I was quite excited by the planes actually being grounded because the, for me, the earth got to breathe, you know, it was mm. really good for her. So um, I think that it's a, it's a moment when we can say, maybe we don't have to go back to normal, right? Like maybe we can actually try something else because we know that the system that we have right now is, is not equitable and not one that is good for majority of the world. Um, as far as curating goes, yeah, it's like, I'm, I'm, I've always been this person, so I'm going to continue to be this person who always asks myself if what I'm doing is relevant. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's that's fair enough because it, I think this whole pause on on the world did give a lot of us time to to sort of sit back and say, yeah, what's next, or you know, um, what else, what else matters post post all of this, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a hard okay. question. I mean, how would you answer that? Um, I mean. I, I, I do think um, it goes back to thinking about, I think I think it's something that you mentioned at the start of, of um, the interview as well. It's why, why, why am I in the arts? And 
I, I do think it's a lot about the relationships. Um, you know, when I started working with a lot of the artists, um, and I enjoy working with artists and their works as well. And it's the relationships that you 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 have first, mm -hmm. um, and then subsequent to that, it's it's you know what what we each have to say to each other. Um, and I think in a in a noisy world, we are saying a lot, but a lot of us might not be listening. You know, <laughs> so I I think now a lot of us are going back to start. Um, and so I think it's a good time to sort of reach out and say, what are you really thinking about now? You know, given that we've had a time to pause and go back to basics, you see? So I, I do see that as a bit of a, 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 a positive in terms of what else we can talk about moving forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As, as the world quietens down a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah you know, um, create new ways of having relationship and new ways of, of doing even an organization or like a museum, you know? Yeah, correct. Correct. Um, okay. You know? Yeah, because I mean, <laughs> I mean, during the whole COVID as well, and everyone's saying, oh, we should go digital and we should go online. And I was like, mm, no, because <laughs> I, I do think a lot of the arts is still that, that kind of um, experiencing uh, each other. Yeah. You know, yeah, which gets a lot harder when it becomes either a Zoom call or like what we're doing now. Yeah. Yeah. But you can do smaller things, you know, like with a small group of people. And yes. Yes. Could be more yeah. sustainable maybe in, in the long run anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. I think, um, yeah, I think that's uh, about the list of the questions or the questions that I've had. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to sort of throw in about what you do or, you know, um, what else you'd like to say? Um, not really. I'm uh, just vibing on what we were talking about. Um, I am sad I can't be there and um, I really do want to come in the future. And as you were saying, it is about relationship building. And so yeah. that's the part that's sad is like I can't see people and meet people. Have you been? Have you been to Malaysia? Uh, no, I haven't. So this uh, is going to be my this part of the world, Southeast Asia. Yeah, I have, but I haven't been to Malaysia, and it's uh, okay. Yeah, supposed to come last year, and then couldn't, and um, yeah, and then I went to Australia to do some stuff, and I was going to come then. And anyway, there's been things that have prevented, and I thought for sure this time it was going to happen, and then COVID happened. <laughs> So if you ever do come to this part of the world, give us a shout out. Um, we'll definitely, you know, uh, take you around or show you around. Um, and thank you so much for spending um, your time with us, especially uh, this late at night in Canada. Yeah, yeah, for having me and thanks for chatting. Thanks, Wanda. Bye bye.